Hey, Chapel Street Church. You know, it's no secret that the war in Ukraine is a terrible tragedy. We should all be on our knees, praying for an end to the violence and the hostilities in that region. As a church family, a couple of years ago, we helped to build Stephen's Home, a ministry to men with uh, disabilities that are, that are desperately in need of care. Elise West and her team have done a remarkable job of building that ministry. But that home is in Kherson, a city that's been embattled uh, under the Russian invasion. And those men and the workers have had to flee. They're currently in Odessa, hoping to relocate to Romania until the war is over. So we just ask you to continue to pray for provision, protection, and end to the war, and that the home would stay standing so they could return one day and continue the, the important work they started there. Many of you have asked how you can support relief for refugees in Ukraine. Well, we're pleased to tell you that Matt and Sarah Titus are Serve the World missionaries in the Czech Republic, and they are right now receiving and preparing to receive more refugees from Ukraine coming through Poland into the Czech Republic. And they've sent us a message specifically outlining how we can help them with the great work that God is doing. Hey, Chapel Street. Just want to say hi from the Czech Republic. Um, and in my garage right now, you can see it's become a bit of uh, like a warehouse hub these days. Uh, I want to say thanks so much to everybody who's been giving, helping make some of this refugee relief uh, possible. We're going to stay active at it for as long as we can. We've been helping to get apartments ready for more long-term living for people, kind of mid-term, more long-term sort of. We've been delivering supplies to locations that can get it across the border to the Ukraine, so actually into the country. And then we've also been helping delivering supplies at big refugee centers where people are coming in, they're only staying for like a few days before they find more permanent housing, like the apartments that we've been finding and re remodeling and doing reconstruction and outfitting for. So it's been crazy busy. It's been an amazing opportunity to be involved in all of it. We're so thankful that we're here in the midst of so much tragedy and that we're able to help and that we're able to do it in, in the name of Jesus and as a church. I think it's such a powerful witness um, that we can actually be the hands and feet and feet of Christ in the midst of such, such a terrible thing. So thank you again so much for everything and for your continued support. Like I said, uh, it's kept us going, it's motivated us, it's literally given us the funds to do all of this relief work. And as long as that's still there, we're going to keep at it. We're going to keep pushing at it as best we can. So thanks so much. Love you guys. So we want you to know that any gift you give to serve the world in this season will help missionaries like Matt and Sarah Titus for the important work they're doing to help these people who are displaced, who are looking for not only material provision, but for hope. And we can give them the hope of the gospel. Speaking of the hope of the gospel, we're so excited to launch into a brand new series on the greatest chapter. Maybe you're wondering, well, what's the greatest chapter? We could argue this. Is it Genesis 1? Is it John chapter 3? Is it Psalm 23? There's arguments to be made for all of these. But we're going to dig into Romans chapter 8. This chapter is amazing. It's full of deep and rich and practical theology that it will help us understand what the resurrection means uh, for our lives. And so we can't wait to begin uh, this week and in the following weeks on Romans chapter 8, the greatest chapter.
Well, how many of you have ever been to visit Mount Rushmore? Anybody been to Mount Rushmore? Oh, man, look at that. I've not yet, but it's on my bucket list. But as you know, uh, Mount Rushmore features the faces of four American presidents. Can you name them with me? Washington? Jefferson? Roosevelt, which one? Teddy, and of course, Abraham Lincoln. Each face, I found out by doing a little research, is 60 feet long. The noses by themselves are about 20 feet long. And did you know that Jefferson was originally supposed to be on the other side of Washington? After two years of of work, work there, they discovered the rock was inadequate and they had to dynamite the face to erase it. Ouch. Yep. Did you also know, and I, I, this blows my mind, that scholars believe that under current climate conditions, those faces will be recognizable over two million years from now. Right? Mind-blowing. Now, Mount Rushmore also inspires all kinds of debates about the greatest or most important in other areas of life. For example, who would be on the Mount Rushmore of athletes? Oh, let's say basketball players. <laughs> or how about superheroes? Here we have Spider-Man, Batman, Superman, and Captain America. You may add your own there. Or what about Looney Tune cartoon characters? Bugs Bunny, Daffy Duck, Yosemite Sam. What? No Foghorn Leghorn? That's like my favorite guy. Or Wile E. Coyote? Right, you could argue all these things. Or how about pie? I don't have a picture for pie, but do you know what the top four pies in America are today by poll? Okay. You probably know the first one. Apple pie. Raise your hand if you like apple pie. Okay, so that'd be on your, on your Mount Rushmore pie. Pumpkin is second. Boo, that's my, right. Chocolate cream. Okay. And then cherry pie. Okay, now, if I was making my own Mount Rushmore of pies, it would be peanut butter pie. My wife makes a killer peanut butter pie. Then it would be chocolate cream pie. Then it would be apple pie, but only with ice cream. And then I'd go back to peanut butter pie, because that's all that I really like. <laughs> but what about the Mount Rushmore of chapters in the Bible? You heard Jeff talk about that on the video. Why would you put us the greatest chapters of the Bible? Now, this is a hard one. Obviously, there are lots of great chapters. Like he said, Genesis 1, the creation of all things. Isaiah 53, the prophecy of the suffering Messiah. Luke, uh, Psalm 23, the good shepherd. Luke 2, the birth narrative of Jesus. John 1, in the beginning was the word. 1 Corinthians 13, the great love chapter. You can't go wrong with any of those. But today we begin a new series called The Greatest Chapter. And we are going to dive in to Romans chapter 8. There are many biblical scholars who actually consider Romans... Eight, not only to be on the Mount Rushmore of Bible chapters, but to be the very Mount Everest of the entire Bible. But before we dive in, we need to do a quick review of what's in the first seven chapters of this amazing book called Romans. Uh, Paul is writing in roughly 57 or 58 A.D., just 25 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. Now, to put that in perspective, 25 years ago was 1997, which was the year Princess Diana died. And so you can get some perspective. It wasn't that long ago that Paul is now writing the letter to the Romans. There's a letter written to believers in Rome, the very center of the great Roman Empire. The gospel has now spread that far, but Paul himself has not had a chance to visit these folks yet. So he sends them a comprehensive summary of the gospel. Beginning in Romans chapter 1, when he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And then he moves on to the great need 
for the gospel, that sin is so pervasive in the world and that all stand under the judgment and wrath of God. He writes in Romans chapter 3, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then he goes on to trace the roots of God's salvation back through Abraham, and he culminates in this proclamation in Romans chapter 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And then Paul begins to explain the implications of living in God's grace. Romans chapter 6, he says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? That's actually a really good question. If Jesus died on the cross and bore all our sins on the cross, why do we have to worry about it anymore? Let's just keep doing what we're doing and we can sin all the more. It's a good question. Paul says, no, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into, I want you to notice that word into, we'll come back to it, Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And then in chapter 7, the chapter that immediately precedes the great chapter we're looking at in this series, Paul deals with the, the inner struggle of obedience, how there's a kind of inner spiritual battle between his old self, what he calls his sinful nature, and the new identity he has in Christ. Listen to what Paul says. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Verse 21. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And all of that leads us right into chapter 8. So we're going to study the first four verses of chapter 8 today. Watch the screens and I'll, I'll read for us. There is therefore, that is because of all he's just written, the first seven chapters, due to the power of the gospel and the grace of Christ, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of, a, of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now you'll notice as we go through this study that Paul, um, Paul was a really smart guy, one of the greatest minds in human history, and he writes very densely packed theology. And it can be almost overwhelming to try to take it apart. But I thought about this, this this week, is that he's writing this to relatively uneducated young believers in Rome that he's never met. And he, he kind of expects them to understand. You know, sometimes we think people get smarter as the centuries go on. I'm not really sure that's true as I study this verse, these verses. But we're going to look at three things here. We're going to look at two words, two laws, and what I'm calling two operating systems. First, Two words. On September 22, 1862, 
as the nation uh, headed toward a third year of bloody civil war, President Abraham Lincoln issued a document that changed the course of American history. The document was about 700 words in length, but we know it by just two words. Can you guess? The Emancipation Proclamation. Now, this is a copy of the original. It's difficult to read, uh, but the, the proclamation among, uh, states this, among other things. It says that all persons held as slaves within the rebellious states are and henceforward shall be free. All slaves in the rebellious states are and henceforward shall be free. And that proclamation, among other things, is why Lincoln's face is on Mount Rushmore. But some 1,800 years prior to that proclamation, the Apostle Paul penned a much more far-reaching proclamation. Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Two words, no condemnation. Now the word no here is interesting. No is a simple word. But the ancient Greek had several options to choose from for the word no. And Paul actually chooses the strongest possible word for no. It carries the meaning of not one, absolutely none. Kind of like we might say, no chance. No way, no how. It's a strong word. Paul's declaring in the strongest possible language that there's absolutely no condemnation for the believer. Not now, not ever. Now the word translated condemnation is also a strong word. It means a death sentence, damnation, eternal death. Now the force of the statement here is like a prisoner on death row having his or her death sentence commuted. Now, I want you to notice something here that's important. Uh, Paul is not saying that innocent people have been wrongly condemned. Uh, we see stories like this sometimes in the news. You know, somebody is wrongly accused of a crime and then uh, wrongly convicted of a crime, serves many, many years on death row until... The, the sentence and the conviction is overturned, and they're set free. We see stories like that, but that's not what Paul's talking about here. He's saying that those who have been rightly condemned, those who are in fact guilty and do in fact deserve punishment, are now not condemned. It's a different thing. Because he's talking about us. He's talking about himself. He's saying that although we are sinners... Even though we have sinned and will sin, there is no condemnation. Why? How can he say that? Well, because of what we studied the last few weeks. That because Jesus carried all of our sin, all of it, Scripture says, in himself on the cross. The condemnation we deserve was on him. Now I want you to notice another little, little small word. The word now. There is now no condemnation. Now, it means that there once was condemnation. Now, there's not. Now, we have to understand this. We have to see this. Because if we don't see this, then the rest of what Paul says in Romans won't make any sense. In fact, the gospel itself doesn't make any sense if we don't understand there once was condemnation. People often ask things like, well, how can a good and loving God condemn anyone, they say? It doesn't make sense. Uh, the God I believe in is a God of love. He would never condemn anyone. But to even ask that question, 
belies a misunderstanding of who God is, because you can't have a loving God without a just God. You can't have a good God who's not just. Justice comes with it, and it also misunderstands what sin is. During my uh, seminary days, um, and I've told this story before, I served as a student chaplain in a large Chicago hospital, along with seven or eight other seminarians from different seminaries around Chicago. And we took turns leading the devotional time. And when my turn came, I uh, did a devotional, very short, like five, eight-minute devotional on 1 Timothy 1, where Paul says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst, he says. So my point was that even as seminarians, even as student chaplains, uh, we need to remember with great humility that we are sinners saved by the grace of Christ alone. And when I was finished with that, quite pleased with myself, one woman was just seething with outrage at me. She said, how dare you? I said, excuse me? She goes, how dare you insinuate that I'm a sinner? The truth is, until we recognize and confess that we have sinned, that I have done, said, and thought things that violate the holiness of God, and that hurt other people. That's the heart of sin. Sin destroys. Until I recognize that, I cannot understand the power of the gospel or receive what Christ has done for me. Now, one more little word. Let me read the sentence again. There, there is, therefore, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is the condition for no condemnation, Paul says, those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, what does that mean? Let me give you a little illustration. I have here a bucket and a ball. If I put the ball into the bucket, I change the location and the position of the ball in relation to the bucket, right? I change the status of the ball. The ball is now in the bucket. So where the bucket goes, the ball goes. If you try to look at the ball, you actually see the bucket instead of the ball because the ball is in the bucket. Now, it's not a perfect analogy. But this is what Paul is saying. He's saying that when we put our faith in Christ, our status changes. We move from outside to inside the bucket. So we go where the bucket goes. We go where Christ goes. What, what is true about Christ becomes true about us if you are in Christ. Now Paul uses this phrase, in Christ or in Christ Jesus, a whopping 165 times in the New Testament. It's his favorite phrase to describe what faith is. And he uses this phrase to describe what happens when we put our faith in Christ. So let me just try to summarize. This. You could do a whole other series on the two words in Christ. But let me just summarize briefly. First, in Christ, Paul says, we receive new life. 2 Corinthians 5, the words of Paul. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... He is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And Romans 6, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead, we too might walk in newness of life. Now, last week I said that the center of our faith as Christians is not the ethical teachings of Jesus, as eternal and as helpful as they are. That's not the center. The center of our faith is not becoming a slightly better version of who we are. The center of our faith is death and resurrection. In Christ, we die, and in Christ, we are born again. We are made new. 
In Christ we have been baptized into his death and raised into his new life. That's the first thing we receive. In Christ we have new life. Secondly, in Christ we receive new identity. In Galatians 3, notice the words I've put in red, the words of Paul. So in Christ Jesus you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now we all know there's lots of talk about identity in our culture today. We hear things all the time like, find your identity, create your identity, express your true self, be who you are, speak your truth. Did you know that now there are 72 identified gender identities in our culture? 72. How many of you walked in here today thinking there were two? Right? No wonder our young people are confused and anxious and depressed. How can you choose which one you are? Now, the Bible does not teach us to speak our truth. It teaches us to seek God's truth. The Bible does not teach us to be who we are because who we are is already broken. Our identity is found in Christ, Paul says, in Christ. To be, in Christ we become children of God. We have a new relationship with God and he tells us who we are. So Paul says we have been clothed with Christ. We're in the bucket, so to speak. Thirdly, in Christ we receive new purpose. Ephesians chapter 2, the words of Paul. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Notice our new life. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Notice our new position. We're in him, with him. We're where he is and he's already in heaven so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God. It's not a result of works that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So, in Christ we have new life, in Christ we have new identity, in Christ we've been recreated for a new purpose. In good works. Fourth, in Christ we receive new, I, new destiny. Romans 6, previous chapter, two chapters earlier. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is why, as followers of Jesus, uh, we can stand by the open grave of a brother or sister in Christ, which I've done five times in the last month, and while we grieve, we can grieve with great hope, a great and certain hope. Because we know by the power of his resurrection, our death, physical death, is not the end. It's only the beginning of our eternal destiny. And we are the only people who can stand by an open grave with that thought. Now, I could end this sermon right here, right? What could possibly be added to what we've already covered? We could all just go home early. Fortunately, Paul's not finished, or fortunately, he's not finished. There's more. Now, what could he possibly add? 
think about marriage for a moment. It's one thing to stand in front of people and to be declared husband and wife, right? You all know how that works. There's vows and stuff. And the guy says, I declare, by the power given to me, I declare you husband and wife. That's one thing. That's a declaration now that you're in marriage. But yet it's quite another thing to be married, to live day by day, week by week, year after year in a marriage relationship. Different thing. And that's what he begins to talk about now. The second thing we see in this Romans in the first four verses are two laws. Two laws. A few years ago, I was driving back from Indiana where I'd gone to watch one of my boys play college baseball. The afternoon game ended at, uh, I don't know, whatever, uh, 7, 6 or 30, 7 o'clock. Went out, took him out to dinner. Uh, so I didn't leave for home until 9.30 or 10 at night. It's a four-and-a-half-hour drive home. But I wanted to get home because I had stuff to do the next day. So I started home. And by the time I got to uh, the exit off of 88 to get on Route 31 to drive up my home from Aurora, uh, I was really, really tired. It's between 1 and 2 in the morning, and I'm just hanging on trying to stay awake to get home. And all of a sudden, I see flashing lights in my rearview mirror. I'm a mile from home. It's almost 2 in the morning. I'm dead tired. Really? Come on. So I pull over, get out my license registration, roll on the window, and wait. Officer comes up to my window and says, ask me politely for my license and registration. I give it to him. He steps back for a second. He comes back and he points his flashlight at me. He goes, are you Pastor Brian Coffey? <laughs> I'm thinking that's either really good news or really bad news. And I said, yeah, I am. And he says, what are you doing out this time of night? <laughs> so I told him <laughs> the story. Um, and he said, well, I stopped you because I noticed you had drifted over the center line a couple times, and I thought you might be under the influence. I said, nope, just really, really tired. He said, well, you're close to home. You're close to home. Just be careful, sir. Have a nice night. That's it. No ticket, no condemnation, no nothing. Just went home. Paul says, verse 2, For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Paul says there are two laws at work in the world. And in us. The law of the spirit of life and the law of sin and death. Now, in Romans 8, Paul uses the word law in two different ways. First, he uses it as a sort of legal requirement, uh, like the speed limit. And we'll talk about that in just a minute. minute. But here he uses law as sort of a, a force, a, a, a power, like we would call the law of gravity, something that just is. He says there's a law that gives life and there's a law that gives death. So what is the law of sin and death? This is the law at work in what we might call fallen human nature. Began in Genesis chapters 1 through 3, the fall in the garden, and continues on to where we are today. This is the law that explains why the world is broken, why we are broken. This is why Paul writes in chapter 7, I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am. That's why he says those things. This is why, for example, little children don't have to be taught to say the word mine. Mine. You don't have to teach them that. This is why many marriages, so many marriages, end in divorce. This is why after 10,000 years of human civilization, we still see racism, tribalism, sex trafficking, and genocide. You'd think we'd fix that by now, wouldn't you? The law of sin and death, as we'll see later in chapter 8 in a few weeks, 
permeates, Paul says, the entire universe. But, Paul says, there's another law. He calls this the law of the Spirit of life. Now, what or who is the Spirit? A long time ago, I was traveling in China um, and had a late-night conversation with an Egyptian student who was uh, my age, and he was also traveling. We both had jet, la- jet lag. We're, we were up in the middle of the night. We're sitting in a hotel hallway, just started the conversation. Total stranger to me, we started talking. We're both awake. So eventually we started talking about our respective faiths. He was a Muslim, so he talked about Islam. I'm a Christian, so I talked about my Christian faith. When I talked about God, he talked about Allah. When I talked about the Bible, he talked about the Quran. When I talked about Jesus, he talked about Muhammad. But eventually I said something about the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. And he stopped me. He said, go back. Tell me about what is this Spirit. I did my best to explain. I was 25 years old at the time. I I can't remember what I said, but I did my best to explain, probably not very well. And he just paused for a minute. He said, no, no, we have nothing like that in Islam, he said. Paul is talking about the Holy Spirit here. The Holy Spirit is mentioned 19 times in the first 27 verses of Romans chapter 8 alone, 19 times. Uh, It's what chapter 8 is all about. And we're going to get into that much more in the coming weeks, but let me just give you uh, a little summary. So who is the Spirit and what does the Spirit do? The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. Trinity, I know you know that. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. So God, the Holy Spirit is God. Jesus promised He would send the Holy Spirit when He ascended into heaven. He would send the Spirit to remind us of all He had taught, to teach us, to comfort us, to be with us, His followers forever. And the Holy Spirit enters our lives at the moment we come to faith in Christ. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. And then Paul says in chapter 3 of Ephesians, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being. So for Paul, in a nutshell... The Holy Spirit is the indwelling presence and power of God that confirms our relationship with Him, that tells us who we are and gives us the power to live a new life. So, we have two words, two laws, and thirdly, we see here two operating systems. Let me try to explain. My oldest son uh, drives an electric car. Anybody here have an electric, car, uh, electric, not guitar, car? You have an electric car? Anybody? Ah, not quite. Not, we're not early adapters, late adapters here. Um, he's, he's got a Tesla. He drives a Tesla. Um, anybody here even test driven a Tesla? Oh, let me tell you about a Tesla then. Okay. Um, it's an unbelievably cool car. It just is. Uh, he left it with me for three weeks over Christmas and the holidays as they traveled, so I got to drive it. Really, really cool. It's absolutely quiet for one. makes no noise. It's weird, dead quiet, okay? It's got amazing technology. The entire dashboard has nothing on it. No knobs, no nothing, except this big computer screen that you can touch or talk to. I didn't have the courage just to talk to it. And it's, these cars are incredibly fast. I mean, I'm talking 0 to 60 in like 2.5 seconds. You feel like you're going to take off. Not that I did it that much, but I, I, I tried it out. <laughs> And it doesn't use any gas, ever. No gas. It's got a giant battery in it somewhere. It's got a different operating system, 
but it does need to be charged a lot. I'll go back to that in just a minute. Verse 3, for God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. There's the two operating systems, flesh and spirit. Now notice here, Paul uses the word law to refer to the law of Moses, the moral standards for holy living. And the law is good. The Ten Commandments are good. In them we see the very nature and character of God himself. But even though the law is good, Paul says, it does not give us the power to keep the law perfectly. Why? Because we are victims of the law of sin and death. We cannot keep the law perfectly. We walk according to the flesh, our fallen nature. And because we cannot keep the law, the law serves to condemn us. But, Paul says, what the law could not do, God did. And this is the gospel. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Those two operating systems. Walking according to the flesh, that is our fallen nature, and according to the Spirit, that is our new nature, our new life, our new identity. So let's just sum up. For those in Christ, there is no condemnation. We've been set free from the law of sin and death. We have new life, new identity, new purpose, and new destiny. But to live this new life, we need a new operating system. We need a new source of power. And that new source of power, that new operating system, Paul says, is the Holy Spirit. Let's go back to the Tesla just for a moment. Like I said, the Tesla's battery has to be charged often. You know, when I had it with me, I had to get an app on my phone. That's how you charge the thing. Uh, so I, can, I get a notification now every time my son takes it to get charged. He lives in Florida right now. And so I, every couple of days, he's, I can, the notification pops up. It's being charged, being charged, being charged, being charged. There are those operate, there's these charging stations all over the country. And so when he needs to make a trip... Uh, he carefully maps out every place along the way where there's a charging station because it doesn't take gas. It has to be charged. He knows he needs to stop charge it up. But what if he bought that car and he loved his car, got into the car, but he just failed to charge the battery? He just, I don't want to stop. It takes too long because it does take like 30 minutes. It takes too long. I'm on my way. I'm having a good drive. I enjoy the car. It's fast. What if he just ignored the power source? How long would that car go? It goes maybe 150 miles. How long would it sit in his driveway until that's all it would do? Sit in his driveway. He could get in it. It would still be a cool car. It would have all kinds of technology, but nothing would work. It wouldn't go anywhere. It could not fulfill the purpose for which it was made. I think Paul is saying we're all a little bit like that Tesla. That is, he wants the believers in Rome to know. He wants us to know that in Christ there is no condemnation. No, never, never will be. In Christ, we have new life, new identity. We have a new operating system with a new power source. So the question for us as we begin Romans 8 is, which operating system are we living by? The old one or the new one? Are we living according to the flesh or are we living according to the Spirit? 
are we plugged into our power source? I hope you'll stay with us through this series. In fact, I want to encourage you to read Romans 8 for yourself. Read it all the way through. It's like 39 verses. Read it every day. Read it at least every week. Read it and read it and read it deeply and think about it. Try to understand. Write your questions in the margin. Circle words your hope we'll talk about, but read it. And I hope you'll stay with us through this entire series. Let's bow in prayer. Lord Jesus, today I thank you for your word. We thank you for removing from us any and all condemnation when we are in you. Thank you for new life and new identity and new purpose and new destiny. We thank you for the gifts of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. Teach us to understand, to experience, and to walk according to the power of your Spirit. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.